0: Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that whereas most kings are very unapproachable, that they sit high and above, and God, you indeed are high above. You are transcendent. You are holy. You are separate. And yet, through the work of Jesus, you, the king, beckon us to your side. And you say, come and speak to me. Come and dwell with me. Come and have relationship with me. Come and lay at my feet your burdens and your cries. Come and joy my fellowship. And so, Lord, we thank you. And one of the great ways that we get to do that is we simply get to talk to you. And so, Lord, we bring praise and thanks to you, God, as our king, that you who reign as sovereign over all the earth, that you provide for us. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have in your providence, that, Lord, you brought little Eli Sorensen into the world into the light sooner than was expected. But, Lord, your hand has protected him in the midst of this. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and we rejoice. We thank you for the Sorensons and their faithfulness and for this church's love and care for them. Lord, at the same time, I also think of those moms in the room who have had premature babies who were not brought home, who um, in your providence you brought to your side. And so, Lord, even while we often rejoice in good news, Lord, as a part of the body of believers, we rejoice and it also it echoes something in us that is that weeps as well. And so, Lord, I just even think as we rejoice of this good news, that, Lord, we, I pray that you would be so kind and so tender to those who have experienced the severeness of your mercy, the difficulty, the times where they question and they ask. Gracious God, we pray that... that those who may um, feel that even today, that, Lord, they would run to where all, all parents and all of us have to run, which is two truths, that you are sovereign and that you are good, that you're over and reigning over all things, and you're a good father who loves us and cares for us. And frankly, you love our children more than we do. So, Lord, your plan is better than our plan, and your ways are higher than our ways. So we thank you that we can trust and lean that. At the same time, Lord, I pray that we as a church would be willing to share these, these hurts and these pains with one another. That we be a church that rejoices with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Lord, we thank you. we're thankful for another year of community groups, the place where we most get to do that. Lord, we get to walk in week in week out and fellowship around the word of Jesus Christ to pray for one another, to break bread together. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a church that is fellowship, a fellowshipping church, not in a smarmy sort of way, that is merely potlucks and, and talking about the football game, but Lord, we would be a church that truly fellowships around the lordship of Jesus Christ, around the common pilgrimage that we are on towards heaven, towards the promised land, and that, Lord, that this, this year of community groups would be a means of growing us towards Jesus, of rooting and appropriating the gospel more deeply both into our own lives, but Lord, to be able to speak it into other people's lives. That Lord, there would be sweet communion. Lord, we also thank you, gracious Lord, for the, 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 the time and place that you've put us. That you've put us next to the University of West Georgia and we are grateful for that. Lord, I tell this to many people, I don't know that I ever want to live in a place that's not a college town again. I love it so much, and I love the college students that you provide to our church. I love the opportunity and the life that it brings to our community and to our city. I love, I love the way it serves my family, the way we enjoy being at that place and seeing those students. And so, gracious God, I, I pray that for a, a kingdom vision for those who are freshmen and sophomores and juniors and seniors who are going to that place, that it wouldn't simply be a place that they take from, Lord, it's great that, Lord, they would be. it would be a place that prepares them for great kingdom work through their education. But, Lord, at the same time, that they would also see it as the harvest field. I wish that a place where they do missions. So, Lord, I pray that our college students, that freshmen and sophomores in particular, that, Lord, they would not come in and think that they're too young, that they can't engage. But, Lord, immediately they get engaged in fellowship and community. That they'd be uh, intentional about... Um, getting into, into relationships that are transformative, that are evangelistic, and that, Lord, that place would be reached for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our opportunity to serve and bless. Thanks for Campus Outreach and their continued faithfulness year in and year out. I pray that we'd be a church that supports them well. And gracious God, we now come to your word, and we plead for you to speak. Because, God, we know that when your word goes out, the spirit goes with it. And I pray that your spirit would now be effectual in our hearts to change us, whether it be the, for the first time to bring us to new life or to renew us and to fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. First John chapter 1, verses 5, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 2. Hear God's words. The passage should be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, read along with me as I read out loud. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Continuing on in chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to the Lord. What we see here is the beginning where John begins in his message in this text as he begins where we ought to begin, which is with God, with the character and the nature of who God is. He begins this way, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now to describe God as light is is a popular description in the scriptures David writes this way where he talks about the Lord is my light and my salvation. He talks about this way again in Psalm 104 when he says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself with a garment, with light as in a garment. And his imagery is also used not simply to describe God on his throne, but it also to specifically describe Jesus as well. And John, not First John, in John 1, verses 4 and 5, it says this, in him, speaking of Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus speaking, he says, I, Jesus, am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Notice when John says that God is light, he also says that there is no darkness in God. They are completely antithetical from one another, darkness and light. And here he writes, not only is God is light, but darkness is, has nothing to do with him. He actually, in the Greek, it's literally a double negative. God is light, and darkness in him is not none, is the way it goes. Now that sounds like to us like bad grammar, but it's really good theology. That if you're a light, if you're a pure light, there is no darkness. Martin Luther said, in Christ, there is no darkness at all. Not even the slightness, slightest. In other words, what that means is there is no dark side to this God. Whereas so many of the gods of the myths and the ancient religions, there is a dark side to who they are. An evil side. A menacing side. But what we look at when we see that, say that God is light, it means that he is holy. There is nothing bad in him. There is nothing sinful in him. He is perfectly right in all ways. And his light, it says, gives life. We think about this even in, the, in, in regards to agricultural world. You need light to grow vegetables. You need light to, have, to grow even in your life as a human being. It gives life. It gives you warmth. And that is who God is in Jesus Christ. The light of who he is, his holiness, in all of his beauty and splendor is what gives us life. Now, the whole book of John is is about this. We looked at this last week. And the book of John is about having fellowship with God. But not just simply, John doesn't just want to simply for you to have fellowship with God, but for you to know you have fellowship with God. And so what he's bringing to the forefront here and immediately beginning with this God is light imagery is he's saying, don't you want fellowship with this God, that in a world that is covered in darkness, in a world in which there are earthquakes, and there are devastating, horrific, unjust governments, in a world where little ones are taken from their mothers too soon, in a world where plague and devastation happens, in a world where even in, if everything in our life is going wonderful, we have hearts that are depressed, that feels the darkness, what you desperately need is the light. And so in this, don't you want to know, don't you want to have fellowship with this God? And this is what fellowship, and this is actually what salvation is. It is a movement from darkness, the darkness of this world, into the light of who God is. This is how the Bible talks about salvation. Isaiah 9-2, in predicting what Jesus is going to do, Isaiah the prophet says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. In John 12 it says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you want to enjoy fellowship with God, then with the God of light, then there are some things that John says that we must recognize. That you must come to terms with about this fellowship. And he gave us three points this morning. That if you want to have fellowship with God, with the God of light, you want to experience the salvation and the joy of it, of this fellowship with the God of light, there's three things you've got to recognize. And the first is this the first thing you've got to recognize is that fellowship with God is contradicted by what we say. Remember, last week, John is about making sure that we are assured, not just that we have fellowship with God, but that we know that we have fellowship with God. And so he's going to provide throughout the book some tests, some measurements. So things to say, listen, is this how you're living? That that is contrary to fellowship with God. Or this is what is, is, in, is, is connected to and consistent with fellowship with God. And the first thing that John gives us here in this passage is, he tells us what is contrary to fellowship with God. A God of light cannot be around darkness. And that in verse and I say it, it's then contradicted by what we say. Because John in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10 is going to say, if we say blank, And then live a different way that we lie. We live in darkness. In verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we are lying. This is the first false claim. This is the first contradiction to being one who has, has fellowship with God. Is that you would be someone who claims to not walk in darkness. And to be one who actually, his life is characterized by unrighteousness. When you understand that holiness that pure light can't have interaction with darkness. One of them is going to go away. And so what he's saying is it is inconsistent for someone who says they are in connection, in intimate fellowship with the light, to be dark, to have that characterize their life. Now when he talks about this idea of this imagery of walking, or of walking in the darkness, that, that does not necessarily mean Perfection. I thought this was a great... I actually heard this from Ben Weber this week. It's a a lingo that Campus Outreach uses to kind of communicate this because we see this this kind of idea of, of walking throughout the New Testament. But they have this mantra that goes like this, that walking is not perfection, but it's direction. Walking in light or walking in darkness is the direction of your life. So what is walking in darkness? Walking in darkness means that the direction of your life is that you sin habitually and in an unrepentant sort of way. In other words, that the direction of your life that never changes is a direction that moves away from the God of light and moves towards sinfulness and towards darkness. And in fact, this is connected to repentance. And this is what John is going to go on to say in verse 8 and verse 10, that the core of what walking in darkness means is that you fail to repent of sins. That's what it means. That walking in darkness means that you fail to repent of sins. Because the very idea of repentance is turning from the direction in which you are living and going in a different direction. It's turning away from darkness and moving towards light. And so a life that is exemplified, that is characterized by darkness, is a life that is characterized by a lack of repentance. And in fact, John, I think, backs us up this up in verse 8 and verse 10. When he tells us more about what we say... If we are walking in darkness. Verse 8 it says. That those who walk in darkness make two false claims. The first false claim is they say we have no sin. And then in verse 10 it says we have not only that. But we have committed no sins. The declaration in the model of a person walking in darkness. Is to say I have no sin. That's what John is saying. The direct contradiction from someone who's living, who claims to have fellowship with God, is someone who says, I have no sin in my life. Is someone who fails to repent and confesses of their sin. Now, this is one of the things that, that people consistently resist, isn't it? That they're willing to say, I've made mistakes, I've messed up. But this language of sin is not something we run from this as fast as we possibly can. People, people don't want to touch this word sin with a 10-foot pole. People will admit they're not perfect. They'll admit they made mistakes. But sin, that's a little much. Because sin has the connotation that we deserve condemnation for something. That we deserve wrath. Cornelius Plantinga, who is a, um, a Christian philosopher, says it this way. in talking about the, the nature and the direction of our culture. That we have a culture of sinlessness. That's what we've moved towards. He says this, The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated it. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins, but now the shadow of sin has faded. Nowadays, the accusation that you have sinned is often said with a grin and a tone that signals an inside joke. Right? You know it from the movies? From SNL? Sinner. Right? That's exactly what he's talking about. That we treat sin as simply just a joke as something that, oh, that's not a word that we use. That's for those antiquated societies. We find it impossible to declare who we are, that we are sinners who sin. But that is who we are, and therefore we've created a culture of sinlessness that pervades every area of our life. No one can claim to be a sinner. No one has the guts to claim to sin anymore. Our politicians certainly can't admit to do any kind of sin, Right? Wow. And George Carlin's got a great uh, bit, stand-up comedy bit about this where he talks about the language that a politician will use as it becomes, the, 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 it becomes more and more clear that he's guilty of whatever thing he's been denying for the last six months. Oh, mistakes were made. But you can, and we have a, such a culture that cannot for, uh, even, can even bring up sin that when, when one man runs for our presidency and now sits in the White House, in an interview last year, he had to say this, why would I ever repent of sin? Why do I have to ask for forgiveness if you're not making any mistakes? One, he can't even use the word sin. And two, he can't even confess to the fact that he's made mistakes. Because we have such a culture that says you cannot speak about sin. To, to confess that you're a sinner, that, that is the worst. We can't go there. Corporations can't even, can't even confess sinfulness. They can't even confess mistakes, right? A corporation has to be dragged through court for years upon years simply to communicate and admit that they made a product in a way that shouldn't have. Parents do this about their kids, right? We're the worst. Some days, we're so, we're, we go from back and forth. Where One day, it's like, oh, my little angel. And the next day, we're like, oh, he's a hellion." But so many right? So many of our parents, so many of the problems is that we, we fail to admit that our kids are sinful. One actually heard one pastor who was at a um, Q&A session in which one woman got up and she said this. My daughter is 10 years old, and she has never sinned, and I don't think she ever will. I just don't think she has it in her. What, what fantasy world is she living in? <laughs> Listen, there is no place. Here's, here's the, to take it from the culture out there and to point it here. There is no place where the culture of sinlessness has pervaded more than the church, though. One pastor tells the story of a man in his office who came because he was struggling with his wife. And the reason why he was struggling with his wife is because everywhere else she was, she was known in the church as a leader. She was a respected leader in the church. She was highly respected by all the other women. She she discipled other women. In fact, other churches brought her in to their women's conferences to speak, and yet he said this, that in their home, in front of their kids, and in front of him, she had never, not once, ever said she was sorry for anything. Never. Not that she was bad at confessing sin, but that she had never confessed sin. Ever. How many of you grew up in a household like that? Where mom and dad would hold up the standard of holiness and hold you to that standard of holiness, but they would never, ever admit to the fact that they were wrong. This definition of walking in darkness is the inability to admit, to confess, or to repent of the darkness that is in us and is committed by us. That's what it means to walk in darkness, is to have essentially look at your life and say, I'm not a sinner. I don't commit sins. I can't commit sins. And what does John says? What does John say here? That if so we have, if we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, if we walk in unrepentance, if we walk in unacknowledged and unconfessed sin, what are we doing? It's a hard word. We lie. We are lying. In fact, in verse eight, it says that when we say we don't sin, we are doing. Who are we lying to? It says in verse eight that we deceive ourselves. We take our self delusion so far now that we've given new innocuous names to our sins, don't we? Like when you used to cheat on your spouse, you know what we'd call that? Adultery. You know what we call it now? We call it an affair. Oh, I had an affair. You know what we've done? We've taken a word that in every other place is a positive connotation, and we've connected it to something that is evil. right? How do we use affair normally? Oh, it was a lovely affair. It was such a swanky affair we went to. And now we've connected to the fact that we're cheating on our spouse. No, I'm sorry. It's not an affair. It's called the murder of a covenant marriage. It's throwing the drama, the beautiful picture that God has given us of his love for the church through the mud. That's what it is. That's called sin. That's called adultery. Oh, you fudged on your expense account. Fudge. Who doesn't love fudge? (laughs) Fudge. You love fudge. I love fudge. We give it to each other at Christmas. And so what have I done? I fudged on my expense accounts. Why? No, it's not fudging on your expense account. It's called cheating. It's called stealing. It's called lying. That's called sin what it is. It's sin. We are sinners. And we sin. The more the problem is, and what John's communicating, and what the rest of the Bible communicates as well, is that when you refuse to call sin what it is, the more we run from the acknowledgement of our sinfulness, the more out of touch of reality and truth that we become. Fyodor Dostoevsky said this, and the brothers of Kirimazov, he said, The one who lies to himself and believes his own lies comes to a point where he can no longer distinguish truth, either within himself or around him. And he's not the first one to say that, because Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1 and 2, how we've, tr- we've exchanged the truth of this world for a lie. But John says when you, st- when you lie to others and when you start lying to yourselves, you know what? You've got even bigger problems, because soon you start lying to God or about God. And in fact, when you say, I have not sinned, you call God a liar, he says in verse 10. Now that's a problem, Right? That's a big problem. John says the man lies himself, as, although, although this is also true, but that he makes God out to be a liar because God has declared what? That all men in all places at all times are sinners. And we say, no, 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 no. No, don't, don't put that on me, God. Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Paul puts it this way. Who is right? He says, is are man a sinner or is God true? And he says, let God be true and every man a liar. That is the truth of it. But here's I want to get down to the point of, because the whole issue is fellowship with God. We want fellowship with the lights. Well, does anything, does anything destroy fellowship like dishonesty? Is there anything in this world that can sever relationship quicker than dishonesty? Parents, you know this in your interactions with your kids. This is one of the greatest dilemmas of parenting, what to do when you know a child is lying to you. You know, I would rather my kids, and this has happened, so I can actually compare. I would rather my kids tell me they hate me, and they've said that to me, than lie to me. Because I can deal with hate, we're dealing with truth there. If they lie to me, it's the destruction of the relationship. The more dishonest you are about yourself, then man, relationship is over. The more you lie and you're dishonest about who you are before God, that relationship with God, you can kiss intimacy and fellowship with the God of life like goodbye. And this has been the case ever since the fall, right? Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They hide. They put, them, they put leaves on themselves and they run from God because the shame of our failure, the shame of our sinfulness, and the unwillingness to acknowledge before God severs relationship. It severs intimacy. Poor kids. It's such a struggle to tell the truth, isn't it? I mean, right, right, what's the problem with telling the truth to your parents? Is because you know, if I tell them the truth that I hit sister, that's going to mean a bad thing happens to me. <laughs> right? Right? It's all hard because the truth might mean consequences. We fear that what we fear most is that the truth, if we let ourselves, we reveal ourselves and expose ourselves, expose both our sin and our sinfulness, then actually that is going to be the thing that separates us in relationship. That, that is going to mean the thing that brings devastation in our lives. Coming into the light is painful and scary. And this is the reality the challenge of coming to a God of light. God of light means God is holy and he is pure and he is right. And when you come into the light and you are dirty and you are covered with sin and sinfulness, that is a painful experience, isn't it? That is a painful experience to be exposed by the holiness of who God is. And so, you know what we do? We do what they do in a few good men. We say to ourselves, You can't handle the truth. This relationship can't handle the truth being honest about who I am and what I've done and what has been done to me, if I communicate that and confess that, that's going to end intimacy in relationship. It's actually quite the opposite. You cannot and will not have intimate fellowship with God unless you're honest about who you are and you're honest about the darkness in your life. And you come and you repent. And so kids, what do you need? What do you need if you're going to tell the truth? You need to know that even if I tell the truth, mom's not going to kill me. Right, You need to know that the consequences have been taken away. You need a guarantee, and this is what we need as Christians. This is what we need as human beings. This is what we need as people who live in the darkness and need to turn to the light. We need a guarantee that when we come into the light, God's light won't kill us. Because that's what it will do. We understand that we know that the glory of God and who he is and my sinfulness, I'm going to get burned up in the light of his glory. And so I need some sort of guarantee that I'm not going to get crushed by his light. That his light is not just going to zap me dead. And this is what John gives us in our second point. John knows that in order for us to move towards God in fellowship, that we need a guarantee. And so that's what he gives us. Fellowship with God is guaranteed because of whom we have. Because of who we have. Verse 1 and 2, this is what John says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have An advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. All right, I'm going to use some big words. The best words. The biggest words. Jesus, here's the theology that John gives us to comfort us. Jesus is our propitiatory advocate. That's really helpful to you, isn't it? It has two parts to it. Two big words. First, Jesus is our propitiation. Propitiation. This is not a word that we use very often, but it's in the Bible. Right? Some people would tell me as a pastor, listen, listen, don't use the big words. Don't use the big words. Use the little words. The words that we can understand. I you know, I had somebody recently leave the church because I said out they said I was too academic, which I was like, oh my goodness. Because I use words like propitiation. You know, it's interesting. We would like, we would like the, the we, we think Paul is just, you know, the Bible is just above us. We can't understand the Bible. You understand how, how insulting that is to you as hearers? You actually can't read the Bible and understand it. That's not true. You need to understand the words. My, jo- my job, though, is to communicate to you what these words mean, so let's look at it. Propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means that a claim against you has been satisfied. For example, let's illustrate it. If you caused a car accident and you did several thousands of dollars of damage to somebody else's car and you're held responsible, they have a charge against you. They have a claim against you. But when you pay the sum total of that charge, then you have propitiated, you have satisfied the claim. That is what propitiation is. There is no more claim against you. It is satisfied And this is what it says in the text that Jesus did. He propitiated. Now, here's the question. What did he satisfy? What did he satisfy on your behalf? What he satisfied was this. He satisfied the wrath of God and the penalty of sin. What you owed God and what God was going to, frankly, extract from you because of your sin, he satisfied that. But the beauty of the gospel was this. If God, the wrath of God was going to extract from you death as a penalty of sin. But what God does is he placates, he satisfies his own wrath against sin. He does it himself. In regards to the illustration of the, the car payment, he pays the payment himself so that you don't have to. That Jesus propitiated the holy wrath of God means that he satisfied the wrath of God. All the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of being on you so that you could get forgiveness instead of wrath. Now, here's the question that we would then have to ask. You look at these, you go, the wrath of God, why, why, can't, the ra- why does God have to be so wrathful? Why can't he just forgive sin? Why does Jesus have to come and die for my sins? Why can't he just forgive? You say, listen, when my, sin, my kids sin against me, I just forgive them, and they go on their merry way. Well, you have to remember that there's a difference between you and God. God is with a loving, merciful Father, but he is also a, he's perfect in his character, and that means he's perfect in justice as well. And this, is not, and this is not a negative part of his character. This is part of the beauty and perfection of his character. He cannot just forgive sins because he is a just God. You notice even when God goes to Adam and Eve, he is compassionate and he is tender and he is kind. He puts clothes on them and he covers them. You know what he does not say to them? He does not say to them, I've forgiven your sins because he cannot forgive their sins unless there is a payment of their sins. Unless the penalty has been paid, and the justice of God demands that the righteous wrath of God be satisfied. Now people say, listen, I don't want to believe in a God of wrath. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. We live in a world in which little girls are sex trafficked. You want the justice of God. I saw this week the, the 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 movie Lion, which is a beautiful story about a young man who gets lost in India. And eventually is adopted. And it's about his trek back to try to find his mother 25 years later. But at the end of the movie, it says this. That every year in India, 80,000 new children are lost. And most of those children end up in some form of enslavement. This is a world that you should long for a God of justice. A God who says, I'm going to make things right. Without the wrath of God, there is nothing in this world that can ever make sense. This world would be merely a sad, horrific, cruel joke. That's all it would be. But praise Jesus, we have a just, wrathful God who's going to put an end to sin, including yours. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God for you so that you might have forgiveness. And to win forgiveness for you was costly. Someone had to pay. Someone, when, when you run into someone else's car, either they're going to pay or you're going to pay for that damage. Someone had to pay for your sin. This is called a ransom in other language. One of my favorite movies of all time. This is such a do movie, so I'm sorry. But many of you have probably seen it. It's a movie, Man on Fire. Now, this, is, this movie is gritty, it is bloody, it is gross in many ways. It is a classic, what appears to be like a revenge movie. It's a Denzel Washington movie. It has Christopher Walken in it, so you know there's some bizarre things, right? But it's, so it's moving along, and with Denzel Washington, his character is he's protecting, he's the bodyguard for a little girl. And at one point, a, a cartel kidnaps a little girl from under his care, and they shoot him five times. And the rest of the movie is about the revenge that he extracts upon this cartel and seeking to get back this little girl. But at the end of the movie, the only thing that eventually get her back is when he's talking to the head of this, this ring, this cartel of kidnapping ring, he, the man says on the phone, her life for your life. And the end of the movie, and I, it's such a dude movie, but at the end of the movie, I'm sitting there like just tears coming down my eyes because the movie ends this way with him walking across the bridge to have his life taken with her running back across the other side to her mother. And that is the picture of what it takes to bring you back into fellowship with God. The guarantee that you can come home The guarantee that you can come into the light, the guarantee that you can tell God about your shame, about what's been done to you, about what you've done to others, about the dirt that's in your heart is because there is a guarantee that it happens because of the work of Jesus. He paid the ransom. He paid the penalty on your behalf. He is your satisfaction before God. And because he is your propitiation, it means that he is also the perfect advocate. So he's our propitiation second, he's our advocate. Advocate is a legal term. It's a legal term. It refers to someone who argues your case before a bar of justice on your behalf. If you're a Christian, that means that Jesus is your advocate before God the judge. He stands there. Jesus is like a lawyer pleading your case. And this idea of advocacy, we talk about and we sing about in our hymns, but I don't know as Christians that we totally got it. Because I think here's what what I think we have in mind when we think about Jesus being our advocate. That he goes before God he goes before God as our advocate, and he goes before him, and he pleads leniency for us. That he goes before, it's like, imagine, he, it's like Jesus walks into the heavenly courtroom with a stack of files, and he's got a file that says Andrew Henley on it, and he opens it up before God the judge, and he goes, I, yeah, I know. What are we going to do? I mean, this is just this week alone. Look at this rap sheet. What a schmo. I mean, and he goes, God the Father, would you... Could you find it in your heart to forgive him again? I know you're such a merciful God. You and I are good. So why don't you, why don't you forgive him? That's how we think that advocacy works. But I think that's, we think in terms of like, you know the parable when it talks about forgiveness and God's forgiveness for us, that it's like 70 times 7? 7, 70? And we're doing the math on our heads. And we're going, oh no, that's the 4,901st sin. <laughs> I'm done for. But the the point of the parable is that 70 times 7 is completeness. It is absolute. It is utter. It has no end. But Jesus is saying that God never stops forgiving us, but it's not for the reason that you think. It's not because of his mercy. It's because God is just. Jesus does not appeal to God's mercy on our behalf. He appeals to his justice. Look at verse 9. In verse 9 it says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Merciful? Kind? Kind? No, it's because he is just. God forgives our sin, not because he is lenient, but because he is a just God. He is perfectly just. And because God, in his justice, won't punish the same sin twice. There is no double jeopardy with God. And because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, you don't have to pay it. That's what God's justice means. And so back in the courtroom illustration, when Jesus represents you before God, you know what he comes before him and he does? He opens the file of Andrew Henley. and he goes, you know what, he's guilty. Okay, God, the judge, go ahead and give me, the, what's, the, what's the sentence, what's the verdict? The verdict is he's guilty and he deserves death. And yet when it comes time to inflict that death, to extract that penalty and that punishment, he says, no, no. Here, this file, this is now on him. I've paid the penalty for him. This file, his file of sins, that goes away. It goes away. I have satisfied all the penalty that was due him. So Jesus, you know what? He doesn't doesn't demand mercy for us. You know what he demands? He demands justice. Justice for you and me because he has paid for our sins already. And that is the advocate. And that is why you can go before God every single day. You can go before God 4,901 times. And 4,902 times. And you can repent of your sins, and he will never, ever turn you away. Forgiveness will always be available. That is the truth. Therefore, you can come with great confidence before God. That is the guarantee of your fellowship with God. Now, living in the light of this truth, it is the key to it, and the means of experiencing assurance is to then ask the question, how are we responding to the truth? How are we responding to that guarantee? The difference between walking in darkness and walking in towards the light of who God is is how we respond to the guarantee that we've been given in Christ Jesus. How the, how do you know that you you have an advocate, that you have a guarantee before God? Well, you see it in your own life. You see, a fellowship with God. The fact that you have fellowship with God is confirmed by how you respond. And Paul or John points to this in two ways. He says this, My little children, I'm writing these things first so that you may not sin. What I first thing I want you to see is fellowship with God is confirmed by how we fight sin. That you'd say, man, I have promise of forgiveness. I'm not going to sin anymore. Now we look at this, and mo- many people look at this and they, we go, Okay, if I'm promised forgiveness, that, that what we think logically what that means is I'm going to go, You know what? I'm just going to do whatever I want. He's going to forgive me. I'll just sin however much I want. But that is not the logic of the Bible, and I actually don't think that's the logic of our our actual experience. The knowledge of such a great love, of a promise that says, I will forgive you no matter what, makes the Christian not want to sin more, but want to sin less. Because it is in the presence of a love like that that makes you want to sin less. D.G. Barnhouse, who is a well-known pastor and prominent uh, preacher in the middle of the 20th century, tells the story of counseling a young man who had fought in World War II. And this man had been a Christian when he had gone overseas in Europe. And after the fighting had stopped, and he was still in Europe, he, he engaged in, in, in an activity that was clearly against God's law. He engaged in all sorts of fornication, and all sorts of behavior that he knew was wrong. He was unfaithful to his love for the Lord's, to his care for the Lord. And so Barnhouse told the story. He was telling this man, well, this young man was coming back after World War II, and he had fallen in love with a beautiful, wonderful Christian woman. And his great fear was just as he had been unfaithful to God, he was going to be unfaithful to this woman one day. It was this pathology. It was styming his ability to ask her to marry him. And so Barnhouse told him this story of a younger man who had had a similar story, a man who had lived a promiscuous life in his past. And he came and he confessed that to his new wife, his new believing wife, and he said, that he, Barnhouse said this, and he said to the young man, here's what I want you to hear, it's how the wife responded. Because this is what she said to her husband who confessed his sin and his fear. She said, honey, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well, and I know some of the wor- something of the workings of sin and Satan. I am aware that you are a man who loves the Lord, but I'm also aware that you're a man who has an old nature, to which Satan will certainly appeal. He will do all that he can to put temptations in your way, and the day may come... And I pray for my sake and yours that it never shall, but there may be a day that will come when you succumb to temptation and fall into sin and you are unfaithful. But I want you to know this, is immediately after that, the devil continue, will tell you that you have ruined everything, that you might as well continue in your sin and you might as well hide it. And above all else, you should not tell me because it will hurt me. But I want you to know this, that this is your home This is where you belong. I want you to know that no matter what sin you commit, there is full pardon and forgiveness in advance for any evil that may come into your life. The man to whom Barnhouse was speaking and shared the story, the young man was sitting there and he began to weep and his head was down and then he looked up and he looked at Barnhouse and he said, my God, if anything could ever keep a man faithful, it would be the promise of love like that. See, Faithfulness. it is not the threat. It is the promise of love that makes you faithful. This is the logic of 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Forgiveness in advance for any sin that might come into our lives. This is God's promise. And it is precisely given so that you might not sin. So you might go, how could I sin against the God who loves me like this? He is so beautiful and wondrous. How could I even think of failing Him? The first response that I want you to see that shows that you have fellowship with God, that assures you of your fellowship with God is that you are fighting sin out of a love for the Lord. The second, though, is this, is that you confess sin. Confess sin. What's the second part of the verse there in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Verse 9, if you confess your sin... But the call of the gospel enables us to come and confess. Right? The illustration of a kid who's afraid to tell his mom and dad the truth because he's afraid of the punishment. The beautiful truth is that you could come to God and confess because he's made it safe. I told this story last year, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it's great. John Orberg, who's a pastor in California, tells about early on in his life when they had young children. And he had traded in a beloved Volkswagen Beetle. It was old, but they had enough money to buy their first brand-new piece of furniture in their life. And he said that they went to the furniture store, and his wife was in love with this particular couch. It was mauve. He describes it as pepto-bismol. He, but the salesman tried to talk them out of it when he found out they had little children. He said, You need a sofa that looks like dirt. But Orpert said, We had the naive optimism of young parents that we could control our kids. And so we brought that, that sofa, that mauve sofa, home. And from the moment on, from then on, the number one rule in the house was don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't sit on the mauve sofa, don't play around the mauve sofa, don't eat on, breathe on, look out, or even think about the mauve sofa. Like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, the saying could have gone, of all the furniture in the house, you may freely sit. But on the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for on it, on that day, you will surely die. (laughs) And one day, the fall came. One day, there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the sofa, who adored the sofa, lined up all three of our children's in front of the sofa. Laura, age four, Mallory, age two and a half, and little Johnny at six months. And she said, do you see that stain? That red stain? That red jelly stain? children? The man at the furniture store says, that stain is not coming out. It is going to remain there forever. And do you know how long forever is? Well, it's how long you're going to stand here until someone confesses. Mo Mallory was the first to break, the little two and a half girl, and with trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, Mallory said, Laura did it. <laughs> Laura passionately denied it, and then there was silence, a long silence. Orberg writes, I knew they wouldn't confess, for they had never seen their mother so mad. I knew they wouldn't because they knew they would spend eternity in time out. And I knew they wouldn't confess because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. <laughs> And I certainly wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> Listen, mom's, you know, you may not know wrath like mom's wrath, her fury. There is no fury like that except for the fury of God. And the reality is, is you, if you in your darkness have to face up to that on your own, you will never do it. But the beautiful truth of the gospel is God has made it safe for you to confess your sin, that his glory will not crush you because you are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. And when he sees you now, he sees the glory of all that Jesus is. The glory of Christ's righteousness. You see, the grounds, the merit of your fellowship with God is the propitiatory advocacy of Christ Jesus. There is no other merit. There is no other righteousness. There is no other way of fellowship and enjoyment with God except through Jesus Christ. But the way you know you have fellowship is this way. Here's the first test. John is giving us tests in the book of 1 John of how we can can be assured of our salvation. And here's the first test. Here's how you can know you're a Christian if you confess your sin. That is the difference between someone who is walking in darkness and somebody who's walking in light. Are you repenting of your sins? That's what a a Christian is, a confessor. And so my question for you today is, are you confessing your sin? All of it. Every part of it. Are other people allowed to communicate to you the way you've sinned? It's okay. You can take that kind of conviction because you're safe and secure in Jesus. Too many of you are doing this. You know what? If I were to ask you, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you why I should let you into my fellowship and an intimacy with me forever, what you would say is, I've done my best. You're being your own advocate, and you stink at being your own advocate. You're already guilty. We need a better advocate. There's this great, great hymn. We won't sing it because it's impossible to sing. We'll sing a different hymn that sings about Christ as our advocate this morning. But it's just the hymn, Arise, My Soul Arise. It has these beautiful lines. I'm sorry, three points in a hymn. But it says this, The bleeding sacrifice on your behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. For my name is written on his hands. The hands of Jesus point to God the Father when we are declared guilty, and he says, I have taken the penalty. See the wounds in my hands. And that calls you to confession. Last week, Carol Hogan was was writing our worship orders now, and, and she and I were dialoguing about the worship order in which she had, Thy mercy, my God, before our confession of sin and assurance. And I asked, wouldn't this make sense to kind of sing in rejoicing of God's mercy after the assurance of pardon? And she said this, no, because the mercy of God is what invites us to confession. That is really good theology that leads to beautiful doxology. So for you, brothers and sisters, the mercy of God and the wrath-taking work of Jesus on the cross is the door for you to come in. It's the invitation for you to confess and to enter fellowship with God for all of eternity. Would you confess your sin this morning? We've already done it once. Will you do it again? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, Uh, We are a people who are insecure because despite the fact that we would delude ourselves with our sinlessness, gracious God, deep down, we know that we are full, we are ashamed of who we are, of what we have done, of our sin. And so, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that for those sitting in this pews or seats right now, that, Lord, that there would be no sin that they think that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover and that they would come and confess it before you right now. Lord, I pray for those who maybe never have done this, that, Lord, right now they would repent that I am a sinner and that I need the wrath-taking work of Jesus on my behalf. I pray that they would confess that now. And I pray for the rest of us that we need to do the same thing. That repentance is the daily activity of the Christian to get up every single day and say, I plead the work of Jesus on my behalf, and it's his work alone. And so, gracious God, this is how I've sinned. And now, God, because of one who has received your love, I want to go out and I want to serve you with my obedience. God, make us those type of Christians. Make us quick to repent. Make us quick to seek to obey. But, Lord, more than anything, convince us of your love and affection for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.